Section 21 of How They Succeeded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. How They Succeeded by Orison Sweat Marden. Vreeland's Romantic Story. How He Came to Transport a Million Passengers a Day. A short time ago, New York learned with interest and some astonishment that the head of its greatest transportation system, Herbert H. Vreeland, had received from several of his associates as individuals a valentine present of a hundred thousand dollars in recognition of his superb management of their properties. Many New Yorkers then learned, for the first time, what railroad experts throughout the country had long known that the transportation of a million people a day in New York's busy streets, without serious friction or public annoyance, is not a matter of chance, but is the result of perhaps the most perfect traffic organisation ever created, at the head of which is a man, quiet, forceful, able, with the ability of a great general, a master, and at the same time a friend of men, himself one for whom in the judgment of his associates almost any higher railroad career is possible. Thirty years ago, Mr. Vreeland, then a lad thirteen years old, was, to use his own humorous reminiscent phrase, twisting ice on the Hudson River, one of a gang of eighteen or twenty men and boys filling the ice carts for retail city delivery. A picture just brought to light shows him among the force lined up to be photographed as a tall, loosely built, hatchet-faced lad in working garb with a fragment of a smile on his face, as if he could appreciate the contrast of the boy of that day with the man of the future. How do these things happen? What was the divine spark in this boy's brain and heart that should lift him out of the crowd of the commonplace to the position of responsibility and influence in the world which he now occupies? If my readers could have been present at the interview kindly granted by Mr. Vreeland to the writer, and could have heard him recalling his early life and its many struggles and disappointments, with a smile that was often near a tear, they would have gone away feeling that nothing is impossible to him who dares, and above all else who works, and they would have derived inspiration far greater than can possibly be given in these written words. I first entered the railroad business in 1875, said Mr. Vreeland, shoveling gravel on one of the Long Island Railroad Company's night construction trains. Though this position was humble enough, it was a great thing to me then to feel myself a railroad man, with all that that term implied, and when, after a few months' trial, I was given the job of inspecting ties and roadbed at a dollar a day, I felt that I was well on the road to the presidency. One day the superintendent asked my boss if he could give him a reliable man to replace a switchman who had just made a blunder leading to a collision and had been discharged. The reply was, Well, I've got a man named Vreeland here who will do exactly what you tell him to. They called me up, 
and after a few short, sharp questions from the trainmaster, I went down to the dreary and desolate marsh near Bushwick, Long Island, and took charge of a switch. For a few days I had to camp out near that switch in any way that might happen, but finally the officers made up their minds that they could afford me the luxury of a two-by-four flag house with a stove in it, and I settled down for more railroading. The Bushwick station was not far away, and one of the company's division headquarters was there. I soon made the acquaintance of all the officials around that station, and got into their good graces by offering to help them out in their clerical work at any and all times when I was off duty. It was a godsend to them, and exactly what I wanted, for I had determined to get into the inside of the railroad business from bottom to top. Many's the time I have worked till eleven or twelve o'clock at night in that little station, figuring out train receipts and expenses, engine cost and duty, and freight and passenger statistics of all kinds. And as a result of this work, I quickly acquired a grasp of railroad details in all stages, which few managers possess, for in one way or another I got into and through every branch of the business. My Bushwick switch was a temporary one, put in for construction purposes only, and, after some months' use, was discontinued, and I was discharged. This did not suit me at all, and I went to one of the officials of the road and told him that I wanted to remain with the Long Island Railroad Company in any capacity whatsoever, and would be obliged to him if he would give me a job. He said at first that he hadn't a thing for me to do, but finally added, as if he was ashamed to suggest it, that if I had a mind to go down on another division and sweep out and dust cars, I might do it. I instantly accepted, and thereby learned the details of another important railroad department. Pretty soon they made me brakeman on an early morning train to Hempstead, and then I found that I was worth to the world, after two years of railroad training, just $40 a month, plus a perquisite or two obtained from running a card table department in the smoking cars. I remember that I paid $18 of my munificent salary for board and lodging, sent $20 home for the support of my mother and sister, and had $2 a month and the aforesaid perquisites left for luxuries. It was about this time, thus early in my career, that I first came to be known as President Freeland. An old codger upon the railroad, in talking to me one day, said in a bantering way, Well, I suppose you think your fortune is made now you have become a brakeman, but let me tell you what will happen. You will be a brakeman about four or five years, and then they will make you a conductor at about $100 a month and there you'll stick all your life if you don't get discharged. I responded rather angrily. Do you suppose I'm going to be satisfied with remaining a conductor? I mean to be president of a railroad. Ha, 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 laughed the man. He told the story around, and many a time thereafter the boys slyly placed the word president before my name on official instructions and packages sent to me. 
A conductor on one of the regular trains quarrelled one morning with the superintendent and was discharged. I was sent for and told to take out that train. This was jumping me over the heads of many of the older brakemen, and as a consequence, all the brakemen on that train quit. Others were secured, however, and I ran the train regularly for a good many months. Then came an accident one day, for which the engineer and I were jointly responsible. We admitted our responsibility and were discharged. I went again to the superintendent, however, and upon a strong plea to be retained in the service, he sent me back to the ranks among the brakemen. I had no complaint to make, but accepted the consequence of my mistake. Soon after this, the control of the road passed into other hands. Many were discharged, and I was daily expecting my own blue envelope. One day, I was detailed to act as brakeman on a special, which was to convey the president and directors of the road, with invited guests, on a trip over the lines. By that time, I had learned the Long Island Railroad in all its branches pretty well, and in the course of the trip, was called upon to answer a great many questions. The next day I received word that the superintendent wanted to see me. My heart sank within me, for summonses of this kind were ominous in those days, but I duly presented myself at the office and was asked, Are you the good-looking brakeman who was on the special yesterday, who shows his teeth when he smiles? I modestly replied that I was certainly on the special yesterday and I may possibly have partly confirmed the rest of the identification by a smile, for the superintendent, without further questioning, said, The President wants to see you upstairs. I went up, and in due time was shown into the presence of the great man, who eyed me closely for a minute or two, and then asked me abruptly what I was doing. I told him I was breaking number 17. He said, Take this letter to your superintendent. It contains a request that he relieve you from duty and put somebody else in your place. After he has done so, come back here. All this I did, and on my return to the president he said, Take this letter at once to Admiral Peyron of the French fleet, then lying in the harbour on a visit of courtesy to this country, and this to General Hancock on Governor's Island. They contain invitations to each to dine with me tomorrow night at my home in Garden City with their staffs. Get their answers and, if they say yes, return at once to New York. Charter a steamer, call for them tomorrow afternoon, land them at Long Island City, arrange for a special train from Long Island City to Garden City, take them there and return them after the banquet. I leave everything in your hands. Good day. I suppose this might be considered a rather large job for a common brakeman, but I managed to get through it without disgracing myself, and apparently to the satisfaction of all concerned. For some time thereafter, I was the President's special emissary on similar matters connected with the general conduct of the business, and while I did not, perhaps, learn so very much about railroading proper, I was put in positions where I learned to take responsibility and came to have confidence in myself. The control of the Long Island Railroad again changed hands, and I was again let out, this time for good, so far as that particular road was concerned, except that, 
within the last two or three years i have renewed my acquaintance with it through being commissioned by a banking syndicate in new york city to make an expert examination of its plant and equipment as a preliminary to reorganization this was in eighteen eighty one or about that time and i soon secured a position as conductor on the new york and northern railroad a little line running from one hundred and fifty fifth street new york city to yonkers not to go into tedious detail regarding my experience there i may say in brief that in course of time i practically ran the road after some years it changed hands a thing which railways particularly small ones often do and always to the great discomposure of the employees and the new owners including william c whitney daniel s lamont captain r summers hayes and others went over the road one day on a special train to visit the property as i have said i was then practically running the road owing to the fact that the man who held the position of general manager was not a railroad man and relied upon me to handle all details but my actual position was only that of trainmaster i accompanied the party and knowing the road thoroughly not only physically but also statistically was able to answer all the questions which they raised this was the first time i had met mr whitney and i judged that i made a somewhat a favourable impression upon him for not long after i was created general manager of the road a few months later i received this telegram h h freeland meet me at broadway and seventh avenue office at two o'clock to-day william c whitney i had to take a special engine to do this but arrived at two o'clock at the office of the houston street west street and pavonia ferry railroad company which i then knew in an indistinct sort of way owned a small horse railway in the heart of new york after finding that mr whitney was out at lunch i kicked my heels for a few minutes outside the gate and then inquired of a man who was seated inside in an exceedingly comfortable chair when mr whitney and his party were expected saying also that my name was vreeland and i had an appointment at two he replied oh are you mr vreeland well here is a letter for you mr whitney expected to be here at two o'clock but is a little late i took my letter and sat down again outside thinking it might possibly contain an appointment for another hour it was however an appointment of quite a different character it read as follows mr h h vreeland dear sir at a meeting of the stockholders of the houston street west street and pavonia ferry railroad company held this day you were unanimously elected a director of the company at a subsequent meeting of the directors you were unanimously elected president and general manager your duties to commence immediately yours truly c e warren secretary by the time i had recovered from my surprise at learning that i was no longer a steam railroad but a street railroad man mr whitney and other directors came in and after spending about five minutes in introductions they took up their hats and left saying simply well vreeland you are president now run the road 
I then set out to learn what kind of a toy railway it was that had come into my charge. Here Mr. Vreeland's narrative stops, for the rest of the history is well known to the people of New York, and to experts in street railroading throughout the country. The Whitney Syndicate, so-called, was then in possession of a few only out of some twenty or more street railway properties in New York City, the Broadway line, however, being one of these, and by far the most valuable. With the immense financial resources of Messrs. Whitney, Widner, Elkins, and their associates, nearly all the other properties were added to the original ones owned by the syndicate, and with the magnificent organising and executive ability of Mr. Vreeland, there has been built up in New York a street railway system which, while including less than 250 miles of track, is actually carrying more than one-half as many passengers each year as are being carried by all the steam railroads of the United States together. Mr. Vreeland's first work on coming to New York was, naturally, to familiarise himself with the transportation conditions in New York City and to learn how to handle the peculiarly complex problems involved in street railroading. He first had to gain, also, the confidence of his men. But this is never hard for anyone who is sincerely solicitous for their welfare, and in such sympathy with their work and hardships as a man like himself must have been, with his own past history in mind. With his hand firmly on the tiller, and with his scheme of organisation perfected, he was soon able to take up the larger questions of administration, to Mr. Vreeland is due the credit of initiating and rapidly extending a general free transfer system in New York, by which the public is able to ride from almost any part of the largest city in the country to any other part for a single five-cent fare, whereas, before the consolidation, two, three, and sometimes four fares would have to be paid for the same ride. It was upon Mr. Vreeland's recommendation also, backed by that of F. S. Pearson, the well-known consulting engineer of the Whitney Syndicate, that the latter determined to adopt the underground conduit electric system in the reconstruction of the lines. At that time, this decision involved the greatest financial and technical courage, since there was but one other road of this kind in existence, and that a small tramway in an Austrian city, while previous American experience with this system had been uniformly unsuccessful. Not only in street railroading proper, but also in steam railroading, automobile work and the electric lighting field, Mr. Vreeland possesses the absolute confidence of his associates, who rely implicitly upon his judgment, intelligence and business acumen. The recent gift already referred to, is one only of several which he has received from men who feel that they have made millions through his ability. Although he is not today a wealthy man, as men are counted wealthy in New York City, he is certainly well along on the road to millionairedom. Best of all, however, and what has probably satisfied him most in his life, has been the host of genuine friendships which he has made and the strong hold which he has upon the working man. A strike of the employees of the Metropolitan Street Railway Company is absolutely impossible, 
so long as he remains at the head of the company's affairs, for the men know well that there will be in that position a man who is always fair and even generous with them, bearing in mind ever his duty to his stockholders, and they know too that no injustice will be committed by any of the department heads. Any one of his four or five thousand employees can meet him personally on a question of grievance, and is sure of being treated as a reasonable fellow-man. Time and again have labour leaders sought to form an organisation of the metropolitan employees, and as often the men have said in reply, Not while Vreeland is here, we know he will treat us fairly. In a recent address, Mr. Vreeland said, no artificial condition can ever, in my judgment, keep down a man who has health, capacity, and honesty. You can temporarily interfere with him, or make the road to the object of his ambition more difficult, but you cannot stop him. That tyranny is forever dead, and since its death there has come a great enlightenment to the possessors of power and wealth. Instead of preventing a man from rising, there is not a concern the wide world over that is not today eagerly seeking for capable people. The great hunger of the time is for good men, strong men, men capable of assuming responsibility, and there is sharp competition for those who are available. End of section 21